the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. There was one huge story on Thursday of last week, which didn't get covered on Friday, began to emerge on Saturday, which was the meeting of Team China and Team Biden in Anchorage, Alaska, which was actually an insult hurl and a um, an obvious uh, collision of visions for the future between the new presidential team and the old Marxist-Leninist team from China. Now, there have been four books in the last 10 years that have mattered about China. Kissinger on China in 2010, 2012. Graham Allison's The Thucydides Trap in 2015. And The 100-Year Marathon by Michael Pillsbury in 2016. Now along comes, and if you're watching on YouTube, I'm holding it up. Chaos Under Heaven by Josh Rogan, Washington Post foreign affairs correspondent. And it has now entered the pantheon of Looming Tower on this show. I'm going to be asking people, have you read the chaos under heaven when you come on for a variety of reasons, which I'll get into. Josh Rogan, the uh, author of Chaos Under Heaven, joins me now. Good morning, Josh. How are you? Good morning, Hugh. Thanks so much for having me on. Did you, um, were you surprised by that collision that occurred in Anchorage? Uh, No, I think, in fact, it was inevitable. I think that, you know, the Biden administration, given the reality of our relationship with China and the reality of American politics had no choice but to go to Anchorage and say the things that they said, which is that the United States can no longer remain silent in the face of an increasing Chinese Communist Party, internal repression and external aggression. And it's not surprising to me at all that the Chinese side is not happy about that. Now, it was surprising to me that they were so public and so bold, and so brazen. And we can talk about why that is, but on the one hand, it shows that they may see weakness in the United States, and they're testing the Biden administration. On the other hand, it, they may feel insecurity back at home. No, I, I wanted to point out that in Chaos Under Heaven, and the lunch rule is we have to say the book name seven times in each <laughs> segment in order for people to remember it and buy it. And I really do want every single person listening to go and buy the book from Amazon this morning, buy it for your friends. It's not a Democratic book, not a Republican book. It's an American book because it's about America versus China, and it's the struggle of our life and of our children's lives and our grandchildren's lives. So go and get chaos under heaven. But it reminds me, Thursday's confrontation, that the same thing happened to Obama and the same thing happened to Trump. And indeed, it may be said to have happened to Bush with the Hunan Island incident, which nobody remembers anymore. But the Chinese, since Clinton, have opened every presidency with a challenge. Well, that's exactly right. And, you know, you're, you're right about the book. It's not a pro-Trump book. It's not an anti-Trump book. It's not a pro-China book. It's not an anti-China book. It's just the best uh, I could do to figure out what happened in these crucial four years as our nation turned its attention finally to the rising challenge from the East. Now, what's funny about what you just said is that the exact Chinese official who delivered the exact same message to the Trump people at the opening of my book was Yang Jishu, the same official who delivered that message you saw on YouTube against Anthony Blinken on Friday. And that's not a coincidence. The Chinese government has kept up the same personnel because they have kept up the same strategy, which is to increasingly challenge not only the United States preeminence in the world, but also the world order that we built with our friends and allies. And while we keep changing strategies, they say their strategy has been remarkably consistent. And it's only recently that we've sort of woken up to that fact. Now, let me embarrass Josh a little bit. My quick review of the book nested in a superb page-turner, and it really is, uh, on the political knife-fighting inside the Trump administration. And it's full of that, and it's the best-reported book, because everything I know to be true, I don't know everything to be true, but everything that I know to be true is in the book, and so I'm trustworthy of that which I don't know to be true, because it's been uh, confirmed by careful reporting what I know to be true, uh, is a comprehensive, necessary reveal of China 2021 headed towards China in control of Taiwan and the South China Sea, omnipotent power globally, an unreformed Marxist-Leninist superpower far more ominous in design and means than the USSR ever was or could become, 
They are the barbarians inside our gates, even though they consider us barbarians. And uh, it's a must read, an absolute go to and order it this morning book, because um, most people don't get this. We've gotten this on this show since, well, at least 15 years ago. But China has become the central dilemma of our time. And the Nixon Kissinger years, their engagement strategy, repudiated by Nixon himself in 1994 in a conversation with William Sapphire and most recently by Mike Pompeo at the Nixon Library, remains kind of a haze and a fog through which Americans walk, Josh Rogan. I gather it is your attempt to clear away that fog that led to chaos under heaven. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, as it turns out, the rise of China is a complex uh, thing, but not something that can be relegated to the discussion of ivory towers or just the China hands that have been mismanaging this relationship, frankly, for the last 40 years. And while I was writing this book, uh, urging uh, Americans to wake up to the challenge of a rising China in our academia, on Wall Street, and Silicon Valley, and Hollywood. Uh, something amazing happened. Actually, all, all of these institutions of American society started to figure it out from themselves because China's actions are, are, are outside of its borders all of a sudden started to impact everyone, from the MBA to the airlines to your local student at your local school. Uh, so that was a broad awakening that was already happening before the pandemic hit. Once the pandemic hit, then every human in every country realized that what happens in Beijing no longer stays in Beijing. And chaos under heaven brings it all together, beginning with the most important point of the book. There is a genocide underway with the Uyghurs and other ethnic minorities in Xinjiang. And it began in 2014. It's expanded to genocide as formally declared by then Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and endorsed by now Secretary of State Tony Blink in his confirmation hearing. There is no doubt about it, and everyone has to measure their complicity with it. Uh, and you detail it. I've had some people refer to the 380 camps. I've had other guests on who've hinted at it, described it. But you actually lay out the details, Josh Rogan. It may be the first major book that discusses the Uyghur genocide. Well, yeah, thanks for noting that. I spent a lot of time with Uyghurs who had survived the camps and the family members of Uyghurs who are still in the camps. And that's almost every uh, Uyghur journalist in the United States has family members in the camp. There's a reason for that. It's because the Chinese Communist Party has been targeting anyone with any foreign ties and literally disappearing all of their family members in its broad campaign of atrocities and coercion. Now, you know, what's amazing about the Uyghur story is it sort of puts a lie to this idea that, you know, oh, it's just these hawkish Americans who want to start a Cold War with China, which is what you'll hear not only coming out of the far left in America, but also coming out of the Chinese Communist Party propaganda outlets. And the truth is, and, and I think Tony Blinken and Jake Sullivan would say this clearly, is that uh, it was actually the Chinese Communist Party that changed the relationship by committing mass atrocities and committing all of this aggression and repression, and we're responding to that. So it's not these crazy China hawks in Washington who want to start a Cold War. Uh, it's the world's response to China's actions as it rises, and the Uyghur uh, genocide is just the most glaring, awful example of that. Now, Josh, when I was a college student in the late 70s, South Africa divestment became an issue of campus activism, and that was a legitimate issue, and it did spur change in South Africa. Will divestment from China reach that level of student activism? Because it is a far, far cry from the other things that get people upset. It is just the decimation of a people. Will it actually yeah. engage the American imagination? You know, we're, it, unfortunately, uh, a, a campaign of boycotting China is, is not practical because of the deep interconnectedness of our economies. But you are seeing on campus a rising activism against Chinese atrocities, but also Chinese Communist Party influence on those campuses. And what you're also seeing is a broad push for uh, what we call limited decoupling. That's moving our critical supply chain so that if we ever get into, I don't know, another pandemic situation, the Chinese government won't be able to do what it did this time, which is to blackmail us by holding PPE and masks over our head while telling us to shut up about their handling of the pandemic. So in other words, this is another reason that the Cold War analogy is so poor and this Thucydides trap idea is so uh, uh, um, ridiculous to apply to U the U.S. and China because China is uh, so big and so complex and will have the largest economy. So we can't attach these bumper sticker labels to the relationship and think that we've figured it out. It's just going to be a new kind of challenge that really has no precedent, both in its character and also in its scope and scale. Now, the new thing that I learned, and I've had on um, you know all of these people, I've had on Pillsbury and, uh, and Graham Allison and Kissinger, 
is I did not understand the financial entanglement and the index fund reflex. Uh, we have 30 seconds to the break, Josh. I don't know if you can get it in, but this is yeah. truly menacing. Wall Street has been pumping trillions of U.S. dollars, directing it into Chinese companies that are building the military machine pointed at us and building the concentration camps. And that was a, some, something that Wall Street has orchestrated over 30 or 40 years. And now we're trying to untangle it. And you have to decide as an investor, do you want to invest in the concentration camps? Do you want to invest in the Chinese military? We need to at least know where our money is so we know what we're doing with it. And the money is now parked in index funds, which are cutouts for obvious Chinese government connection. Josh, what I like about this book, the reason it's readable is it does include these pen portraits of the key players in Team Trump era, and some from Obama and some from Biden, but you've got them grouped. Superhawks, which I think is a misnomer, Bannon, Navarro, and Miller are really iconoclastic opportunists. And you know, I've known Peter for 30 years. Charming man, doesn't believe in anything except himself. Bannon is sort of a super grifter. Miller just wants to be close to the president. The hardliners are the Vice President Pompeo, O'Brien, Pottinger, Barr, and Ray. They're the serious people. The Wall Street clique, Mnuchin and Kudlow, and then the axis of adults who are really kind of clueless people wandering in and out. Uh, although Jim Mattis is a friend of mine, he admits he doesn't know anything about China. Uh, and then you have the incompetents, Tillerson or the incompatibles, Bolton. This clash of personnel and then the family, you detail it. But most people on this show know Pompeo, they know O'Brien, they know Cotton. Gallagher is a weekly guest. He replaced Pompeo as a weekly guest. They know Pottinger, Kissel, Alex Wan, Alex Gray, John Noonan, Nadia Shadlow. They're all guests on the Hugh Hewitt Show, and they're all members of the Nixon Seminar. My guess is these are the people that the Biden people will talk to, and everybody else won't matter to Team Biden. Uh, well, yeah, that's largely right. I mean, in essence, you had a bunch of people that were working to change the government and the way that our government was pointed and what, where the resources were, where the attention was. And those were the people that you just mentioned. And they were less concerned with politics and more concerned with policies. And when the Biden people look at that, they say, OK, well, what are the things that in government that we can actually save? And then they look at the political things and the things that people like uh, Bannon Navarro did. And they say, well, those things are politically poisonous to us now. So, you know, what we find is that the people who actually did the work inside the government and who actually, you know, did the work that was productive, that's the work that's ultimately being uh, continued. And that includes a lot of sanctions. It includes a lot of uh, investigations. Uh, but, you know, I, I don't blame the Biden people for taking a close look at all of the Trump administration policies and going through them one by one. To their credit, they've, they've kept a lot of them so far. To, to, um, to make sure people understand, I saw people like Secretary Pompeo and Secretary Mnuchin personally get along very, very well. They respected each other's intelligence, though their point of views were different. But Mulvaney is the fellow that you pinpoint. I think Mulvaney was the problem here. I believe he was a pleasant North Carolina small town lawyer, state legislator, congressman who got thrown into geopolitics. And unless you study it for a life, you have no. I started in 1979 with Richard Nixon. You've been doing this for how long, Josh? 20 years. Yeah. So I've got. 50 year doing it. You got 20 year doing it. And there is no excuse for doing it. You put the amateurs in there like Rex Tillerson and Mick Mulvaney. All they did was screw up stuff. Right. As it turns out, you know, it's very easy to destroy parts of government, very hard to rebuild them. And, you know, Mick Mulvaney's main problem was that he was so politically focused uh, that he ignored the advice of the national security experts and the health experts, by the way, especially when the pandemic hit. And that led to policies that not only resulted in unnecessary suffering from hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Americans, but also ended up harming the president's reelection chances because Mulvaney didn't want to believe that the pandemic was real. He wouldn't listen to O'Brien and Pottinger and Pompeo. And he convinced the president to delay uh, critical response measures in conjunction with the message that the president was getting from Xi Jinping, who was lying about the virus the whole time. So he also repeatedly back. cut defense spending at OMB and then Russ's uh, deputy did it again and again and again. He was actually the disaster that happened in the course of this thing. I am curious, though, whether you think the presence of John Kerry and Susan Rice and Wendy Sherman, who you identify as weak links in the Obama chain of appeasement and who are now back, will yield their place and their influence to people like Sullivan and Blinken, who are serious about China. They won't yield it easily, but right now uh, it seems that Tony Blake and Jake Sullivan have the ball, and that's shown by the fact that they were given the first meetings. Uh, but behind the scenes, you can be sure that John Kerry 
and Susan Rice are sharpening their knives. And the idea is to wait to see if if Sullivan and Blinken fall on their face and then pick up the pieces. And there's also the, a clash coming when, you know, John Kerry is working on a parallel track to establish a climate change deal, including by working with the Chinese. Uh, when that comes to a head will be when he brings that to the president of the United States, Joe Biden, and then his former staffer, who's now his boss, so to speak, has to tell him that that's not going to work because the U.S.-China relationship doesn't allow for it, or, and then the president of the United States will have to make a decision. So the real battles over China and the Biden administration have yet to come. Josh, you did a lot of reporting for this. You accompanied uh, National Security Council Ambassador O'Brien, and full disclosure, a very good friend of mine, on his trip to Phoenix. I couldn't go because of a conflict of interest, but he had a long talk with you there about the fact that it's a Marxist-Leninist party. People will not understand the Chinese Communist Party until they understand that Xi really believes. Do you believe what O'Brien was telling you about that? Uh, to a large degree, yes. I think one of the greatest uh, epiphanies of the Trump administration and, and what we learned from that era is that, you know, this idea of trying to change China to be more like us uh, didn't work. And it can't be our goal anymore. And we can't uh, pretend that we're in the process of uh, convincing China to liberalize. China's development is going to be driven by the Chinese people, whether we like it or not. And while we want to see change inside China, of course, especially regarding the atrocities, we have to focus first on dealing with China's behavior inside of our borders and inside the borders of our allies and our friends and our partners. So seeing China for what it is, not for what we wish it to be, and then speaking with truth and candor and then dealing with that reality is, I think, one of the things that the Trump administration got right. That's why we called the Nixon seminar uh, on conservative realism and national security exactly what we call it. It brings in most of the Trump alums who were in the hardliner category, along with some who are outside of the government, and gets them to focus on the reality, conservative reality. Now, I want to talk about some of the issues that you bring up. Uh, the only quarrel I have substantively with you is your characterization of Tom Cotton on February 16th on Fox as a conspiracy. He was on my show on February 18th. I began talking about COVID in the second week of January. And uh, Tom was careful to point out it couldn't be ruled out, which is different from saying that it happened. What is the extent of Chinese Communist Party deception about the origins of COVID? Right. I mean, to be clear, what Tom Cotton said in February about the origin of the coronavirus uh, wasn't inc totally incorrect in terms of the words. What I tried to point out in the book, perhaps inelegantly, is that he said this at a time when China was blackmailing the U.S. government with masks and PPE that we desperately needed and that that started a, a, a political controversy that actually ended up making the situation a little bit more difficult than it otherwise needed to be. But as we're learning a year after the start of the virus that the, the origin of the virus is still not known, and we don't, I don't know what it is, you don't know what it is, but we need to find out, not just for blame, but for scientific uh, understanding and to prevent the next pandemic, which will surely come. And what I lay out in the book is that the argument the human era involving the Wuhan Institute of Virology, the world's leading center of back coronaviruses, can't be ruled out and must be investigated. And even though that issue got politicized during the pandemic, it's still an open question and one that we need answers to. Josh Rogan, one of the heroes of chaos under heaven is Congressman Jim Banks of Indiana. Again, no stranger to this audience. I did not know, though, upon being briefed on the extent, and I'm going to have you discuss the extent, of Chinese influence operations in the United States, particularly through uh, the ubiquitous Confucius Institutes, he picked up the phone to the president of Indiana University and said, if you do not close it, you will not get another dime of Pentagon spending. It was closed later that day. I think the bank's uh, uh, example ought to be followed by every congressman in the United States. And if so, advised a couple over the weekend, he really acted on what is, it's mind boggling how much they've spent in the United States to capture and influence our elite institutions. Well, that's exactly right. This is how the Chinese interference in our politics is much different and in a sense, much more uh, dangerous than the Russian influence in our politics, because they do it gradually over time with billions of dollars and what they do is they capture elites in both parties and seed institutions with billions of dollars of money until they're compromised and you know the confucius institute is a difficult one because they're all different and the one in gw where i went to school which i joined to see if there was any influence turned out not to be so bad but at a lot of other schools a lot around the country 
there are real examples of real abuse, both silencing Chinese students, silencing, trying to silence American students and teachers, and also there's intelligence collection risks as well. So what Congressman Banks did, which was to use his influence and his uh, uh, power to shut down one of the Confucius Institutes, may have been a good thing in the end, but it can't be the way that we address this very complicated problem because this has to be dealt on a legislative and policy level, and we can't have every congressman calling up presidents of every university to tell them to shut down their Confucius Institutes. We have to have a better strategy than that. So I think that, you know that's a, a good example of a story where the right outcome occurred, but uh, we really need to think a bit more strategically about how we deal with Chinese influence inside of our borders, which is a growing problem. There is also an ex- a great ch- section on the extent of the attempt at an often successful organizational capture by the Chinese Communist Party of every international organization that they intend to dominate, beginning with, what, 13 out of 16 U.N. arms, uh, beginning with the W8. I mean, it's really quite what well, Richard Nixon said to me the first time I met him, 1978. Americans think in terms of decades, Russia and generations in Chinese centuries. They began and they have executed a flawless takeover strategy. It's amazing that the Trump administration found 26 U.N. organizations, 26 who had signed memorandums of of understanding with China's Belt and Road Initiative. In other words, the U.N. was funding and executing China's economic aggression and China's economic strategy against us. And we weren't even aware of it. And now we're aware of it. The question is, what are we going to do about it? And, you know, I argue in the book that we have to re-engage these institutions. And, you know, we have to look clear-eyed at the Trump administration. They made some mistakes. And one of the things, mistakes I think they did make was by withdrawing from a lot of these organizations. You and I may even disagree with that, and that on that, and that's fine. But in, in essence, the vacuum that we left was filled by Chinese actors and other bad actors. And that's why one reason why we have a U.N. system that's just lousy with Chinese corruption right now. I also want to point out, in Chaos Under Heaven, there is a primer on the tech war, which began in Team Trump years. You accurately, I believe, identify Eric Schmidt and Google as being the prime problem in the United States. You accurately recount Mark Zuckerberg's turn. There is a great deal of tech compromise and a great deal of tech suspicion. Apple does not win any prizes in your book, but it is something that I think cries out for bipartisan legislation. We have to have a national security oversight of these groups, Josh Rogan, because the surveillance system, uh, AI, supercomputing, quantum computing, and surveillance are the issues on which, if China gains an edge, Dr. Kissinger told the Nixon seminar last uh, month, we will not get it back if they gain an edge. We will not ever get it back. Yeah, I think uh, China's uh, encroachment and investment and co-option of Silicon Valley is a huge problem that we have yet to really wrap our minds around. And, you know, what happened was when the national security community started knocking on the door of these tech companies, it didn't always go well because there's a lot of distrust between those two institutions. And, you know, we don't have a system like in China where the government can just tell all the tech companies what to do and they just snap into line. You know, we have to actually deal with these industries on a on a on the basis of, of, of cooperation. And I think that's the key. That's the trick here is to start not only a dialogue about national security, but about how all of these industries and the national security community must work together to solve these complex challenges. Because, you know, in the end, you know, national security and tech and Wall Street and academia, uh, they're all one issue on the Chinese side, right? On the Chinese side, they, they think of this all together, and we think of these things all separately. And that's one of the big, you know, sort of uh, leaps that we have to make as a government, but also as a society. We, we really need smart people in positions of continuous influence. And here I want to turn to Matt Pottinger and Mike Gallagher, who share a, uh, both of them uh, promoted to me by Robert O'Brien, who collected early on a group of people, even when he was special envoy for hostage affairs, working for Pompeo. He collected a group of these young people. He promoted Pottinger as soon as he got there. But I did not know about Pottinger's bills paper. Uh, I did not know about the um, the iteration of his two classified overviews. I didn't know about the Gallagher iteration of bills paper. It is clear that some people arrived with an agenda and they stuck with it and they demonstrated to young people how to move the ball. Well, that's right. You know, while the press was mostly focused on the politics at the top level, Bannon and Navarro and this and that, you know, there was something else going on behind the scenes. And you covered some of that, a lot of that, actually, 
And what I added to this was the fact that Matt Pottinger, the first day he came into the administration, laid out a document that was proposing a broad shift, and it was called a rebalance in Asia. And the idea was to reset the relationship, not to blow it up, not to take down the CCP, but to recognize that our, our relationship with China had fallen way out of whack because the Chinese government had changed because Xi Jinping had decided to take their system in a different direction. And we had yet to mount a, a sufficient uh, strategic response. And that paper, called, which he called Bill's paper, became the basis for a lot of U.S. policy that really continues to this day. And, you know, what I argue in the book is that the reason that guys like Pottinger and Gallagher and others were successful was not because they were so smart or because they were had such great Machiavellian bureaucratic tactics. It's because the Chinese Communist Party proved them right. Because yes. the argument was that the Chinese Communist Party was going in the wrong direction, and the Xi Jinping went in the wrong direction, and now we have no choice but to respond. You also noted in the book that Mike Pompeo was six months early. I believe Tom Cotton was also early. As a result, I believe in there in the top tier. I think actually China is going to be the issue in the 2024 election. Uh, Josh Rogan, I think the issue in the way that Russia was in 1980, agree or disagree? Yes, but I think I think it, it's un- inevitable that China will become a rising issue in the U- in U.S. politics. But I argue there's also a risk there that the issue can become overly politicized, and that we have to make sure that we don't fall into that trap because that's exactly what the Chinese Communist Party wants. They want to divide us. They want to play upon our social divisions and our political divisions. So what I argue continuously is that we have to find a measure of bipartisanship and American uh, uh, pride and American uh, ingenuity to, to come together to solve this problem. And if it becomes just the Republicans versus the Democrats versus the media, well, then that's going to actually play right into Beijing's hands. Last question, Josh Rogan, and we'll talk again on Thursday in a different hour. So more people hear about chaos under heaven. And I emphasize again, people, you need to go read this and give it to people. Go make it number one on Amazon. Um, a senior East Asia diplomat told me in person on Thursday that Taiwan will be absorbed by China by 2027. That is that is Xi's plan. He is moving forward on it. It will not come via invasion. It will come via the Hong Kong tactics. Your assessment of that dire prediction? Well, I think, uh, you know, we have an opportunity to influence the course of events between now and 2027. And what the Trump administration showed is that if we stand up to China, the whole world doesn't fall apart. It doesn't mean we head into some sort of conflict. It doesn't mean we're headed towards a Cold War. Those are bumper stickers. Don't believe it when people tell you that we have a false choice between standing up to the Chinese Communist Party or doing nothing. So when it comes to Taiwan, I'm sure that Xi Jinping would, will try everything he's permitted and allowed to do to, to exert Chinese control over that island, that country, that group of 23 million people who have been free for all of this time and have no intention of going back into a system where they're not free. And the question really is whether or not we're going to stand in his way. And that we can't do that alone. We have to do that with our allies and our partners. It's not going to be easy, but that's just well, the situation that we're in. And, you know, in my experience, America tends to rise to the challenge. I hope we will again. Congratulations, Josh Rogan. I hope you continue to, to cover this as comprehensively as you hand, have. We will talk again on Thursday for a longer podcast. Congratulations. Has the book been well-received? I've been getting tons of positive reaction, except for the Chinese communist propaganda trolls. Oh, my goodness. You mu- I-, I know what that's like, and they must be all over it, so I do not believe the Amazon reviews posted by poll- trolls. Believe me, America, go get chaos under heaven and do it today. Thank you. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Time for a pause now in this edition of the interview with Hugh Hewitt. I want to remind you that our sponsor is AndrewandTodd.com. There with Sierra Pacific, 
they lend you money to refinance your house or buy a home or help your son or daughter become investors in real estate by becoming a non-occupying co-borrower. They help senior citizens with reverse mortgage. They help veterans with no money down mortgages. They help you refinance. So if you need to get money out of your house or you need a whole new house, go to andrewandtodd.com or call them at 888-888-1172. Now back to this edition of Hugh Hewitt and the interview. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. It's very rare on the Hugh Hewitt Show when an Inside the Park home run happens. That's when I do a multi-part interview with a book author, as I did with Josh Rogan, whose new book, Chaos Under Heaven, Trump G and the Battle for the 21st Century, was featured on Monday. Then I do a podcast, which I'm beginning now, the interview with Hugh Hewitt with Josh Rogan. Then I write a Washington Post column about the book. And then I begin to ask guests, have you read, have you read uh, the book um, Chaos Under Heaven? I, I only do that with very, very few books. And the one I most recently did it with is Looming Tower. I, for years, I've asked people, did you read The Looming Tower? Because I thought it was the defining book of the Islamist age. And so the reason I did the the Inside the Park home run with Josh Rogan is I think Chaos Under Heaven is such a book. Josh Rogan, welcome back to the Hugh Hewitt Show. Thanks for having me back. Uh, look, I think I think it's picking up speed. I see you were on with Chuck Pod on the pod on the Chuck Toddcast, which I think is very clever. I've seen it reviewed not just in my column elsewhere. How is the book doing? Uh, beginning a huge positive response uh, from a, a lot of different. Uh, sectors. Uh, it's not very popular with the Chinese Communist Party trolls on Twitter. They don't seem to like it at all. Um, but you can't make everybody happy. I have not seen it reviewed in the Global Times yet, which is the party's propaganda sheet. Has it been denounced there yet? Uh, I have been denounced in the Global Times, not the book specifically. I think they're still waiting for their copies. Uh, but rest assured, they noticed it because I have been getting uh, lots of uh, uh, um, hate mail from uh, the Global Times and other Communist Party trolls of all kinds. Uh, I think they hate the clarity, Josh. And I do believe the clarity is what recommends the book to my audience. The book is Chaos Under Heaven. I have to say that seven times while we are on the air, and then we will continue into the podcast about Chaos Under Heaven. Let's talk about your decision to write it. You are a reporter. You are a reporter that's worked for four or five different organizations. Recently, you were Eli Lake's partner. Now you're on your own and at the Washington Post. When did you decide? I mean, this risks the ire of the CCP and they never forget. When did you decide to take this up? Well, it was in 2003 that I first began. It became a journalist for the Japanese newspaper, the Asahi Shinbun. And when I, that's when I first realized that the China story was going to be the story that was going to dominate our foreign policy and our professional careers for as long as we're in these businesses that we're in. And, you know, it was in 2016 when I realized that the Trump election was going to bring the China story to the forefront and to the awareness of every American. And then it was in 2020 when the pandemic hit, when I realized that every person in the world now had to understand what was going on in Beijing, to understand what was going on in their own lives and in their own countries and in their own public health. And, you know, all of those things were, uh, you know, sort of set in motion uh, when Xi Jinping took power, when he started to take China and the Chinese government uh, in the opposite direction of the way we wanted it to go, which was political and economic liberalization. They're not going that way. And now uh, the United States and the rest of the world is finally moving to respond. What year did Xi Jinping become the general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party? It was late 2012, early 2013. But even at, at that time, if you remember, he didn't really have the kind of control and dominance over the system that he had today. And at that time, some of his best international friends were people like President Obama and Vice President Joe Biden, who had 25 hours of dinners with him when they were both vice presidents. And the idea was that he might still be a reformer, that he still might be willing to you know, turn China towards a direction that made it a, a constructive player in the international system. Uh, but it was pretty clear by 2016 when President Obama was leaving office that that wasn't the way it was going to go. Uh, but we don't know what would have happened if Hillary Clinton was elected. What we do know is that Donald Trump got elected, and his people soon realized that in fits and starts, and mistakes were made, and it was kind of two steps forward, one step back, as you know, Hugh. But in the end, they finally called it and said, no, this Xi Jinping is not a reformer. He's actually 
uh, doing a lot of bad things in a lot of places. What I want people to understand about chaos under heaven, it is not American centric. It is not exclusively American centric. What it means by that is it begins with this accession of Xi Jinping to ultimate power and unchallenged authority and iron fisted rule in China. That is a break with the evolution that we had hoped for in China, uh, a break that was perhaps not justified after Tiananmen Square, but to which we clung Many people cite the accession into the WTO as the turning point of the Nixon-Kissinger policy of engagement. But if that wasn't it, definitely the rise of Xi Jinping. And Josh Rogan, how would you describe to people Xi Jinping's career path before he became the Iron Man? You know, he's just one of these princelings, one of these select few people in China that is just anointed for great things. And, you know, if, if you look at the his predecessors, you know, it, it became clear that amongst the course of Chinese leaders, he sees himself as in the same class as the Mao Zedong and Deng Xiaoping and above those who really didn't change Chinese society uh, and reassert Chinese uh, uh, prestige the way that he wants to. And so, you know, it, it in that small coterie, right, the CCP doesn't really operate as a socialist, much less a communist system. It's a it's a cartel. It's a it operates like a mafia family, and everybody knows each other, but all the factions hate each other, and they're constantly purging each other. And it's, it's like a mafia family with like a sheen of aristocracy. And he's part of that aristocracy, and all he's done since 2013 is purge all of the other families and all of the other competitors and literally thrown them in jail or disappeared them. And that's how he consolidated power. That's what, that's what he is. He's a, a, a ruthless uh, dictator. Uh, who, as we can see, has no plans of leaving the scene anytime soon. If anyone knows their Soviet history, they will just have heard the echo of the Lenin era, when Lenin sat atop a set of factions. And when Lenin died, Stalin ascended, and he wiped out every other faction. And thus, he held on to power until his death in the 50s. Then they returned to instability. This seemed to me to be Xi as Stalin in this scenario, he is wiping out the opposition, and there are still a few, quote, old China hands who believe that the party can reform and evolve into a liberal democracy. I believe you demonstrate in chaos under heaven. That's not happening, Josh Rogan. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of old China hands in Washington. And, you know, some of them believe that the bet that we made on China, which was that if we just gave them all the help that we possibly could and integrated them into our system as much as we could, that they would turn out more like us and that would solve all the problems some of the old china hands believe that was the right bet at that time and they just didn't it didn't work out some of them believe it was always a foolish bet some believe it's a bet that we should still make today in other words there's still a lot of old china hands who think we have no choice but to engage because they don't want to contemplate what the other scenario would look like but the young china hands or the middle-aged china hands let's say they don't feel that way they weren't part of that bet they didn't you know weren't in positions of power in 2000 when we granted China PNTR and all these other gifts. So, you know, the younger China hands kind of see China for what it is, not for what the old China hands want it to be or want it to become. And I think that's what you're seeing, too, in our policy, a turnover, a generational turnover. And guess what? If you've been doing China for the last 20 years, you don't have this rosy, optimistic picture of, you know, a China that's going to reform politically and economically to be just like us. You understand that China's China's development is going to be driven by the Chinese people one way or the other. And we just have to be clear eyed about that and then mount our, our response to protect ourselves. Now, let's let's go back, if we can, to the Trump side of this. The party exists. The Chinese Communist Party exists. And China goes its own direction, regardless of who is in charge in America. That direction has been expansiveness and it has been bullying. In fact, in every forum around the world for the past 10 years, they have used brass knuckles and debt to ensnare, trap and manipulate foreign governments. And perhaps you ought to cover Belt and Road before I turn to the Trump uh, Biden transition. Right. We're not just talking about like a two trillion dollar program called the Belt and Road Initiative, which is designed to essentially capture countries and entire continents into debt trap schemes that, you know, promise you tons of beautiful infrastructure. But they don't tell you about the back end, which is that, you know, you're going to have to have to hand over that infrastructure when you can't make the loan payments because the loans are all predatory. And by the way, we're going to corrupt your elites and 
by the way, we're going to defend them as they commit atrocities, et cetera. Uh, that's one part of it. But the coercion is so much more expansive than that. I mean, first of all, we have sort of the Chinese encroachment and takeover of international organizations, including U.N. organizations, to enlist them in the schemes. Then you've got the pressure that you see just today of the Chinese Communist Party punishing any international company that dares to not toe the Chinese Communist Party line. Just today, what were the two? H&M and Nike, right, who, you know, for very understandable and obvious reasons, wanted to know whether or not their cotton that they were getting was being picked by slaves, by Uyghur slaves. And spoiler alert, a lot of it is, right? And yes. just for raising that question, uh, they're getting boycotted and their business is getting punished. That's how they operate. That's the mafia tactic. That's the- there is a reflexive need to punish anyone who criticizes. And you mentioned the trolls. I want to pause here to say anyone who lives on Twitter and says anything remotely harsh about the Chinese government one, hears from the Chinese government in ways subtle or not subtle, and two, is assaulted by trolls. It's happened to me. happens to me a lot. It happens to you a lot. It's just part of the, of the cost of covering the CCP. Right. It's, it's, it's both. It's kind of the Russian-style sort of Facebook groups to try to sow discord into our system. You see a lot of the Chinese propaganda now directed at inflaming our domestic racial tensions to try to pit us against each other, undermine confidence in our information environment and undermine confidence in our democracy. And then there's just the, the pure, like, genocide denialism and, you know, sort of putting out messy propaganda that's meant to confuse everybody. Because remember, the, the reason disinformation is so effective is because you're not trying to win the argument. You're just trying not to lose the argument. So by corrupting our information space while keeping American media and American social media out of the Chinese information space, they're trying to game the the conversation and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't you know josh today we are talking about chaos under heaven in the uh the heads of facebook and google and uh, i can't remember the third uh, twitter are going to the hill do you expect that they will get many questions about china which is what i would devote the entire hearing to do you, do you expect anyone will bring up china and their relationship with these three companies yeah i'm sure they will but the problem is that you know when we get these guys uh, in front of a bunch of senators or congressmen, you know, the, the discussion of China essentially boils down to, well, why don't you get, you know, get all of the Chinese trolls off your platform, which is an important but very small part of the actual problem, right? And Facebook's not in China and Twitter's not in China. And Google is like, they have some stuff in China, but not really. The real tech companies that are really vulnerable in China are companies like Apple, right? Who are, have factories in China, who put their cloud servers in China, you know, subjecting Chinese users to all sorts of spying and whatnot. And those are the companies that really need to be brought to the table and, and, and made, put to a decision about whether or not they're going to stand up for the things that their company is supposed to believe in or whether or not they're going to kowtow to the Chinese Communist Party. Now, on the one hand, we have your very elegant portrait of how the Chinese government operates. Then you have the Obama administration, the Trump administration, and now Team Biden. They operate in different ways. Team Biden got a slap across the face in Anchorage last week. I read about this in the Washington Post today in connection with chaos under heaven. I don't know what they expected. What they got were insults. Uh, It was jarring to them. If anyone had read chaos under heaven, if Jake Sullivan has it under his arm, he would have expected it, Josh Rogan, because you called it. Right, because the message that the Chinese leaders gave to the Biden team was the exact same message they gave to the Trump team in Jared Kushner's office on, in 2016 during the transition. The only difference was they gave it to the Trump team. And they were actually much more nicer to the Trump team in public than they were to the Biden team. And we, you know, we could, that's kind of a crazy thing to think about, but it happens yep. to be true. Now, the, I think what's important to know from Anchorage is that this is just the first bat, right? This is, they're, they're squaring off against each other, and this, they're going to have a lot more interactions. And, you know, everyone's sort of like, you know, pumping, beating their chest and acting all tough. Uh, but, the, you know, it, it's going to take months for this actually to play out to see really who has the upper hand. And I don't think we know what the Biden administration is going to do, because I don't think they know what they're going to do, and they're still trying to figure it out. Now, if I were your publisher, Josh, I would have you signed to do a second book now on the first Biden and perhaps only Biden term. Because it seems to me early on that the Biden administration is going to split into China camps, just as the Trump administration did. Do you agree or disagree with me on this? 
No, I agree with you. I would say they're going to split just as the Obama administration did because it's the same exact people, right, just in different chairs, you know. And it's kind of flipped because when you think about it, the Obama administration, Susan Rice and John Kerry at the end were in charge of the foreign policy, and they were the more optimistic and all about engagement and cooperation. And the more competitive people like Jake Sullivan and Tony Blinken were working for them. But now in the Biden administration, John Kerry is supposed to be working for Tony Blinken, if you believe that, right? Uh, so it's the it's the same exact people. They're just they just moved offices, and that, that I think those clashes are definitely coming, and probably soon. And I am struck as well by the comparison between General Mattis and General Austin. Neither of them are sinophiles. Neither of them have much experience in the world of China's military. They are Mideast people. Uh, and therefore, they're going to be at the same disadvantage as you chronicle General Mattis is having been. But General Mattis had self-awareness about that. In fact, it's one of the most interesting portraits. I assume you talked to General Mattis because you have quotes of his exchange with uh, uh, senior Chinese defense officials that are very revealing. He knows he doesn't know, but he tells him he knows how to fight. Right. Jim Mattis spent his career in the Middle East, but he learned on the job and he was able to do that because he's Jim Mattis and he had a lot of help. And, you know, but still, when he got to Beijing, when he first got there, he didn't really know the score. But by the time he left, he knew a lot more than when he arrived. Now, you know, when it comes to the, uh, the Biden team, there are zero China hands in the cabinet. None. Right. And there, I, you can't point to one of them. And that's not, again, not a Democratic problem, not a Republican problem. That's a problem with our whole pipeline of government. We had, a, a, you know, people focused on Russia for 50 years and we had people focused on the Middle East for 20 years. So, this again, this whole sort of generation of China hands has always been fighting an uphill battle from inside the system. And every once in a while they get to peek up into the policy and have some influence. But that's why we keep re- have to relearn all of these lessons over and over again. Uh, because, you know, it's not just about saying that China is the most important thing in our foreign policy. You actually have to steer the aircraft carrier in that direction. You've got to move the resources. You've got to move the, the budget. You've got to do the things that would actually make it the biggest foreign policy priority in our country that it needs to be. And those things just haven't happened yet. Now, what is interesting that happened under President Trump almost accidentally is that while there was this group of iconoclastic, eclectic, and some would say wacky superhawks, there was also a group of New York Wall Street types, both in and outside of the government, inside of the government, Mnuchin and Cohn, and outside of the government, Steve Schwartzman and Fink. But then there were the hardliners, and these are the serious national security professionals that are to China as Condi Rice was to the Soviet Union, someone who spent their life Coming up, it was led by Secretary of State Pompeo, but it has a deep bench. National Security Advisor O'Brien. You've got uh, Matt Pottinger is probably the most um, prevalent name in your book because he's there for the longest period of time. But there are Mary Kissel, you, Alex Wong. There are a lot of China hands. Does the Democratic Party, uh, the Biden administration, have anybody besides Jake Sullivan, whom I consider to be very sound on this issue? who represents a Pottinger-like consistent force for seriousness on China. Yeah, well, the direct uh, uh, counterpart for Pottinger would be Kurt Campbell, who's not exactly a China hand. He's an Asia hand, which is, uh, you know, a a small but kind of important difference, right? He's he's more focused on alliances. He's got more experience in places like Japan and Korea and Burma and India than he does actually dealing with the Chinese. And that's why I think you're seeing what you're seeing, which is that we're dealing with our allies more. And we're dealing with the Chinese less. So if there's anyone to inherit that portfolio, that's who it is. Then you have a lot of other, you know, young, smart people who are spread around the government. And I, you know, would add to that list Eli Ratner and uh, Rush Doshi and uh, Laura Rosenberger. And these are, again, people who are, you know, technocrats. They're not political. They're not they're not even really, you know, uh, uh advocating for one strategy or another. They're just professionals. And that's what you're saying. You're saying about the rise of the technocrats. And, you know, is that going to work? Well, it only works if they are able to, they're actually empowered, right? And the problem with the technocrats is that they often are not empowered to do the things that they think are right. So now we have a technocrat as the secretary of state. Let's see, you know, let's see if they actually give him the ball and let him do stuff. I don't think we know the answer to that yet. One thing I'm looking for is whether or not Team Biden embraces a vigorous shipbuilding program. President Trump promised but did not deliver. 
It's the great failure of the Trump presidency. He promised a 355-ship Navy. They barely got a plan. Nothing happened. Uh, I right. mean, they did. They, they commissioned a frigate in Wisconsin, that, and they got one extra Virginia-class submarine. Nothing happened. Meanwhile, the Chinese People's Liberation Army Navy, and that's not a misstatement. That's what its title is, the PLAN, has grown and grown and grown. Do you see any indication that Team Biden is aware of the threat of a blue-water Chinese Navy? Yeah, well, well, you know this, Hugh, because you reported it at the time. That actually, this is one of the things President Trump was really mad about. He really wanted that 355-ship Navy. He thought he was promised it, and he was really upset continually that his Navy officials never delivered it. It really soured him on more than one Navy secretary over the years because he couldn't understand why they couldn't get this done. Right. And, before, you know, because he's not a Washington guy and you know, for, for Washington guys, it's pretty obvious why it doesn't get this doesn't get done because our procurement and acquisitions system is totally dysfunctional and bloated and, you know, corrupt and, you know, wasteful and all of those things, all those big problems. We can't even get a Pentagon audit. So in, to, that's a long way of saying, no, I don't think we're going to get to a 355 ship Navy. We could have a debate whether the number of ships or the type of ship or the you know, the capability of the ship is the more important thing. And I think that's a good debate to have, but it's kind of overtaken by events because, like I said, our, 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 our procurement system is so broken uh, that it's not r- really likely to happen one way or the other. Yeah, my friend and naval historian, uh, Captain Jerry Hendricks, has written a short book called To Provide and Maintain in an effort to try and get people to focus on none of the political squabbles, but just the baseline, what you need to counter the People's Liberation Army Navy, because before long, we're going to turn around and the South China Sea will be denied entry to the United States absent an international confrontation and Taiwan will be under threat. Josh Rogan, since last we spoke, a senior East Asian diplomat told me that Xi has moved up the takeover of Taiwan to 2027. Is that consistent with your reporting? Well, uh, nobody nobody really knows, but it's clear that the rhetoric and the intelligence shows that uh, China's aggression and Xi's focus on Taiwan is increasing. We don't know how many years, it could be five years or ten years or two years, but that's kind of the problem is that that sort of uh, assurance, that sort of stability, it, you know, imperfect as it was, that kept the peace of, across the Taiwan Strait for the last 40-some-odd years is not really there anymore, and that's a huge problem. And, you know, what we did on Hong Kong, and I think this was actually – despite the effort of some in the administration, a huge failure of the Trump administration, to stand up for Hong Kong during the crackdown in the way that would send the message to signal to, to Xi Jinping that he shouldn't go any further. But as we find with the CCP, their appetite grows with the edict. And the more we let them get away with, the more that they want. And Taiwan's next on the list. I don't know when it's going to happen, but that's probably the most important thing that we have to watch. The appetite grows with the eating is probably the most succinct summary that Josh Rogan has come up with of Chinese foreign policy. Again, we're discussing chaos under heaven. If you haven't read it yet, it is a rip-roaring good read, and it's a page-turner. Hard to believe, but it's a page-turner because artfully woven is a political narrative about inside the Trump administration, and a geopolitical narrative about what the U.S. and China are doing. It is to the latter I want to turn. In my Washington Post column, Josh, I try and summarize what you uh, explore at great length, which are the great atrocities of China. Number one, uh, while you discuss the Tibetan takeover, that is such old news. I interviewed the Dalai Lama in 1995 in Atlanta for three hours, and it was old news then. The new news is... What was done in a relatively obscure and small scale in Tibet is being done in a large scale in front of the world because of satellites. They're killing the Uyghur people. It's that simple. Yeah, well, you know, Tibet was patient zero. The testing ground for so many types of the atrocities, digital authoritarian abuse, concentration camps, forced labor, cultural genocide, actual genocide, uh, and it's not a coincidence that the official who did that in Tibet was then promoted to do it in Xinjiang and expanded it. Now, uh, now I'm going to blow your mind. What, it, Tibet is actually new news because what they've done now is they've taken those perfected atrocity systems from Xinjiang and reverse imported them back to Tibet. And what you see now in Tibet is actually the building of massive prison and internment camps where they're scooping up lots and lots of innocent people and then you know, indoctrinating them and then shipping them off into factories to be slaves. I and did not know that. He, there are 380 such camps in Xinjiang. How big is the Tibetan effort? 
According to Lobsang Sangay, who is the president of the T- Central Tibetan Administration, their democratic government in exile, 600,000 Tibetans are right now in internment camps, and the number is growing all the time. And so 600,000, okay, well, that's less than the 1 to 2 million to 3 million, who knows, who have been in and out of these Xinjiang camps, but it's a lot. And now I'm going to blow your mind even more. The camps are starting to pop up in other parts of China, including in uh you know, in 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 in, uh, in the in Mongolian part of China and the Mongolian uh, uh, ethnicities and the Mongolian uh, local governments are horrified and shocked by this, and they don't know what to do because that's in a minority that has had relatively good relationships with the leadership in Beijing all this time. But those are all breaking down. So you're you're you know what this is not going to end. They're going to keep expanding these camps a- until they run out of minorities to throw in prison and to make slaves out of and to erase to- uh, it, it's very difficult for people to believe the term systemic racism as applied to the united states it's not a debate i want to have right now but if any regime in the world is systemically racist it is the chinese communist party they are attempting to replace every ethnic minority with the han majority is that a fair statement josh rogan Yes, it's a, it's it, they, the Chinese Communist Party uh, abuses more Muslims than any other organization in the world, and yet no, almost no Muslim country has spoken up. A Muslim majority country has spoken out about it. You know, and if that's not the the, the most racist government policy in the world, I don't know what it. Okay, and you know that that is why we have to sort of reject this false equivalence while acknowledging that our system has problems, that we have inequities, that we must keep working to perfect our democracy. That's a truism. I don't think that we can even. No one would. Even, that's not even controversial. But the fact is that that is not the same thing as genocide. That is not the same thing as putting a million people in concentration camps, where they literally, you know, the first thing that they do is they shave all of the women's heads and then they put that hair on a boat and they send it to us and put it in our stores. And you know, if you don't, that doesn't bother you. If that's not something that shocks your conscience then I don't know what to tell you. But for me, it does. And for you, it does. And the more people that are aware of it, the more people are saying, oh, wait a second, we have a responsibility to do something about it. Not because we're China hawks, not because we think America needs to run the world, but because these are atrocities that can't exist in 2021. It's, it, it's, not, it's, it's against the, the, the principle of humanity that we all aspire to. You are up against, Josh Rogan, the Great Wall of Indifference, which is if it doesn't happen in America, a lot of American media doesn't care. Uh, I wonder if you're breaking, if you think you're making some cracks in that wall. It's the Great Wall of Self-Absorption that is the West. If it doesn't happen here, people don't care about it. And you draw a very nuanced, very complete portrait of what has happened in Xinjiang. And by the way, you draw a complex portrait of influence uh, operations in the United States. So that's happening here. I'm not sure anybody's behavior is changing. Have you seen anybody's well, behavior change as a result of this? Yeah, well, you know, first of all, my reporting is of one very small piece of a rich tapestry of journalism that has been done mostly by brave journalists who have actually ventured towards these camps and used other very risky methods to get this data you know, what I tried to do is I tried to find the, the survivors of these camps and people who had firsthand accounts and documents who could tell these stories. But, you know, I'm one of over 100 journalists who has done a lot of really important work, and I do see things changing. And, you know, it's kind of unfortunate silver lining of the pandemic that most Americans all of a sudden woke up to the fact that, you know, Chinese government's behavior actually does affect their lives and they can't ignore it anymore. And they're all of a sudden interested in it and all of a sudden they want their leaders especially the U.S. government, to do something about it. And that's not an awakening that just happened in America. It happened in every country in the world, because every country in the world got coronavirus, and then most of them got blackmailed by the Chinese government, you know, to shut up about China's response if they wanted their masks and their PPE and, you know, their vaccines, et cetera. And so, you know, this is one of those things that is, you know, dawning on the consciousness of people around the world, Slowly but surely, and, you know, I think every, all, all of us have a sort of responsibility to just sort of think about it and talk about it and, and, and have a constructive conversation about it that doesn't devolve into sort of accusations and BS because it's too important. It's, it's got to be something that's bipartisan. It's got to be something that's international because this is not really about a U.S.-China Cold War. This is about an international response to China's actions as it rises. 
Very interesting, Josh. A side note, uh, Dr. Fauci was my guest on Monday and I on Tuesday, and I asked him about the gain of function research done in the Wuhan oh, uh, virology lab. He denied that his institute has anything to do with it, but then he backtracked a little bit. The transcript is posted at hughhewitt.com. I think that wow. gain of function uh, reporting that you did in Chaos Under Heaven is one of the most underreported parts of the book, and I hope people begin to pay attention. We're coming to the conclusion of our time. I want to ask you the most important question. Uh, I believe governors who have been uh, uh, gifted by the stimulus bill with billions of dollars could both serve their states and the necessity of building up our infrastructure and artificial intelligence, quantum computing and technology uh, uh, depth of investment by using that money to do that. Do, Do you think any of them will take this opportunity? You know, I don't, I hope so. I, I think that, you know, First of all, these kinds of investments have to primarily come at the national level because they're, they're, they're just that systemic. They're just that large. They're just that important. And I think that's what you're seeing in Congress now. Schumer and Todd Young and Rokahana and Mike Gallagher, who you know, have a bill to put $100 billion into this uh, National, Science Foundation, uh, National Science Foundation rejuvenation. That is becoming a hotbed and a target for lots of other China-related bills in Congress. This will be a major test over whether Congress can get its act together and work in a bipartisan way, not just to, as Tony Blinken says, slow China down, but to speed us up, right, so that we can win this race, so that we can win this competition. Uh, so far, it's not going great, and I think our leaders in both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, if any of them are listening, and I know a lot listen to your show, uh, they should work it out because, again, if we can't, get our act together, then we're just playing right into Beijing's hands. I'll discuss it again with Mike Gallagher next week, but I want to close by saying chaos under heaven. Trump, Xi, and the battle for the 21st century is the book of 2021, the book of 2021. Congratulations, Josh Rogan. I know it's not easy to sell a book in the period of the pandemic, but you're doing great. Keep it up. Thank you so much.